From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Undercurrent. Hello, and welcome to The Undercurrent, Season 11, Episode 4. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly. This week, we'll kick off the show with a story about Robert Jenkins, a local comedian who released an album, Attempted Salvation, earlier this year. He's also performing at a Planned Parenthood benefit later this month, February 27th, at Max Bar. After that, we dive into flat rate tuition. It's coming next school year, fall 2019. You've probably heard about it, but what is it? And why is the change even happening? Reporter Sophie Sagan interviewed Dr. Mark Largent, the Interim Dean of Undergraduate Studies and Interim Associate Provost for Undergraduate Education. They're going to answer all of your questions and explore the pros and cons of this new system. To close out the show, you'll hear from reporter Nick Sable, who traveled around campus asking fellow students for their opinions on this new flat rate tuition thing. What do you think, the students of Michigan State? Nick surveyed a small sample of y'all, and you'll hear that later. Right now, you're listening to Impact 89 FM. This episode is called Costs and Benefits. I'm your host, Cole Tunningley. Robert Jenkins just released his second album last month. It's called Attempted Salvation. You can find it on Apple Music, Amazon, and CDBaby.com. I brought him into the Impact Studio to talk about his jokes, his life, his opinions, and what he's going to do next. First, I wanted to know how Jenkins' life had changed between his first album and his second. Well, um, my mom died. That was the one thing that happened. My mom died this past September, September 9th, 2018. And, uh... You know, that was crazy. You know, it was crazy to do it. It wasn't like a, a surprise. You know, she had been sick for a long time. She was actually sick. Uh, she had cancer the f- with the first album. Um, I felt it would have been weird to not address that, you know. So, you know, that's something that definitely I talked about. And it kind of tied into to a theme that I had with a lot of my uh, material on the second album. It's a much darker, I guess, darker album than the first one. Not necessarily intentionally. It's just, I mean, you, things have been kind of wild in between 2015 and 2019. So, I asked Jenkins if humor helped him cope and if the jokes he ended up writing and performing on the album about his mother's passing were a necessary part of the grieving process for him. I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, humor is a, is a pretty pretty common coping coping mechanism for people, especially comics, you know. And uh, the joke, actually, that joke came to me the same day my mom died. And I, like, kind of was talking to my family, like my brother and my, my dad was there, and aunts and uncles. And I said something like that joke, and everybody started laughing. So I was like, man, that's, some, that's funny. So I did it, like, the next day at Max. And then it was just something that I kind of worked on this might sound kind of weird, but it's like death is death. Death is a thing. It's 
good, it's bad, but it's a thing. It's ultimately, it's, it's inevitable. So you can kind of choose how you want to react to it and what it means for you. You know, like there's this, uh, you ever heard of this band called Death? There's a, they're like a proto-punk band. And like, if you, they, there's this documentary about them, how they wouldn't change their name. And they were on their way to getting signed and they would be a big thing, but they wanted to change their name. They're like, no, we're not going to change our name because death doesn't have to be a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's a thing that can be talked about and joked about just like anything else. One of my favorite bits on the album is when Jenkins talks about the celebration of dead American war criminals who passed away within the past few years. Men like George H.W. and John McCain, their deaths and the American public's reaction to them are proof that death is a thing like Jenkins says, something that everyone will have a different perspective on. We have so many different reactions to death and almost none of them are like realistic, right? You know, we, um, you know, people say you shouldn't speak ill of the dead. You shouldn't lie on the dead. What you say about them is entirely up to them based on how they lived. So, you know, somebody's a dirtbag and they die, and now they're a dead dirtbag. Obviously, Jenkins seems willing to approach topics that many people would rather avoid. I was curious about how he felt about the rise of the anti-PC comedian, guys who like to offend people. You'll hear people say, okay, that joke, if if this comedian were around this time, then they wouldn't be famous. They couldn't, people couldn't handle their jokes. Well, isn't that like a sign of, like, progress? They're like, yeah, because the stuff they did, the stuff they said was kind of insensitive to certain groups of people. And those people have a voice now, so you can't disregard them. And we've all come to kind of a higher understanding about certain stuff. You know, it's certain comics that I listened to back in the day that now I go back and listen to their jokes. And it's not cool to laugh at that type of stuff. You know, you grow up, you you evolve. By not evolving and changing with the times, Jenkins says that most of these guys end up looking ridiculous and old-fashioned. People think that it's like the, the stuff that's funny back then should be funny now. It doesn't evolve, right? It's one of the only art forms people think is cool to not evolve. Like if I went to the club and just broke out and started doing a Charleston in the middle of a, a dance club, people look at me like I'm crazy. Like what he's doing to Charleston? What is this? You know what I mean? Like So you can recognize that with a dance, but comedy is an art form just like that, too. It has to change. His personal philosophy involves getting mad at the right stuff and making sure the audience knows that he's only talking about what bothers him. You know, like, I've never been one to want a group of people to feel bad at a show, like I'm picking on them. You know, if anything, I'm talking about the things that bother me and the things that bother me don't have anything to do with specific groups of people. It's a system. It's, you know, inequality. It's all these other bigger, larger forces at play that are greater than one specific individual or types of or group of individuals, you know. Not all of the jokes on attempted salvation are about death and politics and other serious stuff. Throughout the album, Jenkins shows that he can do lighthearted, kind of absurd jokes just as well as he can do dark comedy. I do have a lot of silly thoughts. You know, like when the world isn't burning, I think I'm a, kind of a silly person when everything isn't on fire, you know. So th- that stuff comes to me, and I and I, I don't believe in any joke I write, I'll tell. Is that true? 
Yeah. Any joke I write, I tell. Because, I mean, that's it's for me. You know what I mean? It's all a part of me one way or another. So I don't really think that there's any jokes that I do that I'm like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Like, no, I wrote it. I should I should say it, you know, if I, if I think it's funny. Luckily for Jenkins, other people think his thoughts are funny, too. The reactions to his album are proof. People like it. People like I've been getting some real positive feedback. The, one of my favorite things about it is that, like, I ask people to tell me their favorite track, like their favorite joke, and all that. Now, I think I have 13 tracks on there. I've gotten 12 different answers. So, like, it's something for everybody, and that's that's cool. I like how people laugh at certain things, you know, different people. Some jokes hit people in different ways. You know, I think that's, that's a good thing because... You know, I, I want somebody to be able to take away, I want everybody to be able to take away something from from an album that I make, you know. Later this month, Robert will appear at the Planned Parenthood Benefit at Max on February 27th. The benefit started the year after Donald Trump was elected president. You know, after the election, looking at all the stuff going on, like him being able to appoint people to the Supreme Court and their whole thing to get, you know, overturn Roe versus Wade, like, I'm a big believer in, like, intersectionality, right? You know, so, like, you know, I'm a black man. I'm not Planned Parenthood's necessarily their target demographic, you know what I mean? But you have to step outside of your group to help people. If you want to bring everybody up, you got to reach out and help people. And also Planned Parenthood, like, they're, like, the number one provider of health care for women of color you know women of color use their services a lot so you know the first year was the the goal was 2017 dollars in the year 2017 so that was our goal to raise two 2017 dollars because it was the year 2017 and y'all know how numbers work so you know we hit that we went way past that actually the first year the second year, we didn't raise as much. It was 2018, 2018. Uh, we got close, but we didn't hit our goal. So this year, we want to hit our goal, uh, $2,019. So we got, we're going to have a, a you know, typical lineup. We got great comics coming in from all across the state and stuff. And we have a silent auction going. And it's going to be fun, man. It's going to be fun. You can find out more about Robert, his tour dates, and his past releases by going to robjcomedy.com. Again, you can find out more about Robert Jenkins by going to robjcomedy.com. The Undercurrent will return in just a moment, but now it's time for our weekly impact update. First, we're going to reporter Taylor Halterman with your local news. An expanding marijuana company, Green Peak Innovations, had its first harvest this week. They plan to add around 100 new jobs to the growing and processing facilities in Lansing and Windsor Townships by the end of the year. Currently, the company exclusively grows and distributes medical-grade marijuana, but they plan to expand to the recreational market. They have a pending permit application with the city council to open a dispensary in East Lansing. If the application is approved, they could potentially open the dispensary before the end of 2019. Over the next two years, Green Peak Innovations hopes to open even more dispensaries throughout Michigan, which could offer up to 400 new jobs. Green Peak's first shipment of medical marijuana will go out for distribution by the end of this month. With your local news, I'm Taylor Holterman. 
Thank you, Taylor. Now we're going to Elaine Mallon with your international news. On February 14th, by a 303 to 258 vote in the United Kingdom's House of Commons, Prime Minister Theresa May's proposed exit strategy from the European Union failed. 66 Tory members of Parliament abstained from the vote with the motivation of keeping a no-deal Brexit as a viable option to use as leverage against the EU. A no-deal Brexit would mean that the United Kingdom would exit the European Union without negotiating on key issues such as the backstop policy, which currently would maintain an open border between Ireland and the UK. With Brexit's official date set as March 29th, Prime Minister May must work to achieve a deal which appeases the pro-Brexit members and those opposed to the UK's departure from the European Union. This has been your weekly impact update. And now, back to the undercurrent. You're listening to Michigan State Student Radio. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and this episode is called Costs and Benefits. I was just talking to Robert Jenkins, a local comedian performing on a Planned Parenthood benefit, taking place later this month, February 27th, at Max Bar. Should be a fun show. Now we're moving on to reporter Sophie Sagan's story about flat rate tuition. The Hanna Administration Building is a daunting structure on Michigan State's campus. It is towering and gray, Even if you've never been to MSU, you could recognize this building from its many recent media appearances. Protests on the front steps and public board meetings have been... Protests on the front steps and public board meetings here have been shrouded in discontent and turmoil for over a year. Many might see this time in Michigan State's history as a transitional one, and they would be correct. But while most of the focus is on the board of trustees and the acting presidents, Other administrative workers are busy implementing a myriad of new policies and procedures that will affect the school for years to come. One of the policy changes coming to the university as soon as next fall, fall of 2019, is the implementation of flat rate tuition. Currently, the school operates on a pay-per-credit model. In other words, in-state students pay between $482 and $573 per scheduled credit hour. Students from out-of-state pay a bit more, between $1,325.50 to $1,385.75. Starting next year, the university will switch to flat rate tuition model. That works like this. Using the same credit rate, students taking between 12 and 18 credit hours will be charged a flat rate equivalent to the current price of 15 credits. Students taking 11 or fewer will continue to pay per credit hour, while those taking 19 or more will pay the flat rate up to 18 credits before they are charged the per-credit rate for each additional credit hour. There has been plenty of pushback on this change, but Michigan State is actually behind compared to similar universities when it comes to implementing this policy. Every other Big Ten school, save Nebraska, uses flat rate model. Five years ago, the Board of Trustees gave preliminary approval for this transition, but former President Simon chose not to move forward with it. Mark Largent is the Interim Associate Provost for Undergraduate Education at Michigan State, and he has been tasked with overseeing this transition. Several years ago, we recognized that students at MSU had been working at a slower and slower pace over time, that a smaller percentage of students were taking 15 or more credits in their first semesters, for example. 
students tend to slow down after their first year. So you really want that first year to set a pace. Um, we also know that moving at a faster credit momentum rate increases student success. It's, um, it doesn't really seem sensible that, that students who take more classes do better in their classes. The explanation for that tends to be something that most of us experience on a daily basis. When you're busy, you get more done. You tend to be more focused. In addition to this benefit, flat rate tuition is meant to give students more flexibility when planning their courses. And of course, its overall goal is to help students graduate in four years, therefore reducing the amount of time and money spent living and going to school in East Lansing. Mark Largen is a proponent of flat rate tuition, but he also recognizes that this change is a disruptive one. The problem is that the institution and its students are very well adapted to the per credit model. So it's a very disruptive change. Um, and that change, if it's not accompanied with a very thorough reevaluations of policies, procedures, and cultural norms, is going to um, be an unpleasant change. Dr. Largent and his office are not responsible for the flat rate policy. It was simply handed over to them to implement. Many students and faculty across campus have been resistant to any implementation of any administrative changes, not necessarily without founding. The overwhelming example set by those in the spotlight over the past year has been disheartening to say the least. But Dr. Largent and his team say they're taking a new approach to this project that might indicate hope for the future by tackling student and faculty concerns with a bottom-up approach. Well, I'm optimistic that the university took this challenge very seriously, and uh, I'm very proud of my colleagues and to see how they've responded to this because what they've done is they've said, first and foremost, we have to learn how to work in a way that's not entirely familiar to us, and that's sort of working from um, the ground up, and to get people together who we haven't always engaged in the kinds of higher-level conversations about things like policies, practices, and procedures. Um, instead, we've told them, figure out how to do this, or just do what we tell you to do. And so watching that process through the fall was very um, invigorating. It was interesting for me to feel optimistic about uh, Michigan State University's capacity to um, be reflective and thoughtful about how it ought to be doing these kinds of things. This was really different from what I have experienced before. How they went about this was by creating three committee work groups, focusing on the separate issues of data and research, academics, and students. Renata Opachinski, University Alliance Fellow at MSU, was in charge of overseeing these groups. She too said this project was a little different from those she's worked on in the past. What I think is unique about the way we structured this project is how many voices across campus were heard. And I, I have been a part of projects where um, we might have representation from different units or colleges, but it is usually at one structural level. So maybe it's all assistant deans or it's all frontline staff. And we were very intentional when we were creating these work groups to not only go across campus in the sense of different units or colleges, but we also went kind of hierarchical. So across all levels, um, we had vice presidents, assistant vice presidents, excuse me, on the committee, all the way to entry level um, professionals. And so we really made sure those who were talking directly with the students, you know, our advisors, they are the ones who see probably more students on campus than anyone else. Um, so we had them on the committee, all the way up to those who were going to be implementing um, these policies, and then up to those who were kind of going to be just supervising and, and maybe um, 
advocating for the initiatives. Um, so I think that really helped when we were talking about things. We had it, it helped and it hindered. It helped in the sense that we had lots of perspectives, but that's also sometimes a difficult thing. So we had all these people who had very different views that sometimes conflicted with each other. Um, so it made for a very rich conversation, but then it did take some time to really think through what then we wanted to propose or put forward based on the different perspectives that were heard. So was this new structure that champions collaboration and representation and overall bottom-up negotiating an intentional step to redefine MSU's procedural processes? Does it set a precedent for the new MSU? We didn't design it to do that. Um, But I think maybe unintentionally it was because for us, where we were coming from as administrators was just like the students, I think, felt some frustration with this and probably still feel frustration with this change. It was something that was done to us. It wasn't a decision I made. It wasn't a decision he made. I mean, it was very much former President Engler and the Board of Trustees made this decision. And so, when I, again, when I was creating the work groups, my thought wasn't less about building that trust, but more about knowing that this top-down structure is not something that faculty and staff appreciate. And so wanting to make sure that while we couldn't, we could not change the, the policy that was created, we could at least be as collaborative as we could in the implementation of that policy and kind of the concerns and whatever we were going to bring up to make sure that, because um, I wouldn't say it was about building trust, I think it was about building community amongst ourselves maybe is what I would say. The flat rate tuition transition is one more disruption to Michigan State's campus. As in all cases, the outcome is only one disruption. The process taken to get there is another. For Impact Student News, I'm Sophie Sagan. Greetings and thank you for tuning in to The Undercurrent, Season 11, Episode 4, Costs and Benefits. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly. You just heard reporter Sophie Sagan with a story explaining everything you need to know about the changes coming to MSU, and now it's time to hear from some students. Reporter Nick Sabo ventured out into the world to hear from you. Are the students of MSU looking forward to the upcoming changes? Here's Nick. Hello, my name is Nick Sabo, here on The Undercurrent. This week, I thought I'd go out and ask around campus about what people thought about the flat rate tuition for next year. After asking around, these are the results I got. All right, so what year are you? I'm a freshman. Freshman. Senior. Um, I'm a first year. I think I'm a first year. <laughs> okay, well, how many credits are you taking this semester? Right now, 14. 15. Uh, an average of like 13 credits per semester. And how many are you going to take? Uh, probably about 15. Uh, I, I was going to bump mine up. It'll probably be around between 14 to 16. Hopefully zero. As an engineering student, it's hard to take more than 15. Just it gets really tough with all the classes. So I don't think I'll ever like actually take the more than like 14. Basically, if you take between 12 and 18 credits, you pay the same rate as if you were taking 15 credits. And are you for or against this idea? It depends. I'm against it because I believe that the way they're setting it up, and I don't know if this is 100% true, but the impression that I'm under is that the flat rate tuition is a fixed price based on if everybody were averaging 15 credits a semester regardless, but I'm actually taking less than 15 credits. So I think that it's charging, they're overcharging me because of it. Against. Why? 
because I'm never going to take 15 credits in a semester ever again. <laughs> I'm for it because on average I have to take anywhere between 17, like 16 to 17 credits a semester, so it will save me money. I am totally against it because I'm about to graduate and I don't have 15 credits to fill every semester anymore. I mean, I feel bad though for like the engineers and all the people who like take a lot of hard classes that would have to take more than like, they gotta pay for a class they don't take, which sucks. Like She's the I'm one that told her about it. I already have to pay my um, engineering fee to come here to be an engineering student, and then they're making me pay more money for something that I'm not going to even take. So I'm completely against it. Well, you see, I, I can see the benefit to it if you want to, like, take more credits a semester to, like, add on a major or a minor or something. So, like, in that case, Taking 18 a semester, but only having to pay for 15 is pretty nice. But at the same time, if you're someone who needs fewer credits a semester, who can take only needs like 12 or 13 a semester to graduate, all of a sudden paying that extra $1,000 doesn't exactly seem very nice. So I guess in that vein, maybe you should be able to potentially opt out of paying for the 15 credits, if you would like, or at the same time, you should be able to take advantage of it if you want. Does that make sense? So why do you think they would be doing this then? Maybe to like encourage people to take more credits. Yeah. That's my, my guess. With the assumption um, that not too many people will be taking more than 15. Yeah. I would say, I'd be for it if it was like, you got charged for 12 credits whether you took 12 or 18. I think if you're getting charged 15 for 15 credits, if you take anything less, you should only be charged for those credits. If you get take more than 15, you get charged for 15. That makes sense because why would you... Like, I get why they do it because they want you to take 15 credits every semester so you're getting your money's worth, but I think it's kind of annoying because if you're a senior, you're charged way more and you don't need to take that many classes, so it's just a waste. They really are trying to push students to do the Go 15, so if they're going to charge you for it anyways, then you might as well take the classes. If it's going to be like a general overall good thing, why are they just doing it now? I don't really know. Too many students, maybe? I know a lot of private schools do it, so that might be like the push. They're trying to become more like that. I mean... I know like other schools have started doing it, like Grand Valley, I think, has done it a while, but from what I understood, they're doing is like 12 to 18, but you're charged for 12, not 15, so. Look at the last year in MSU's history. We haven't exactly done a good job of doing things when we should have. <laughs> what do you think, then, is the reason behind them doing this? I don't know what the f*** they're doing. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why do you think they haven't done it until now? Because they don't know what the f*** they're doing. <laughs> Do you like the system they have now where it's like pay by the credit? Personally, I mean, it's all too expensive. But, um, yeah, I mean, it makes more sense. Why should someone who's taking 12 credits pay 15 credits? Yeah. Like, I feel like most people who aren't taking 15 will be like, well, I might as well take 15 now. And then if you're taking more, then you'd be like, well, I'm set. Yeah. So, I don't think it'll change too much. Yeah, I don't. I, also, I agree. I don't think it'll change too much. No, yeah. I just don't like the idea of flat rate tuition. Is there any way they could change it so that you'd be at least okay about it? 
I mean, I can't think of anything because my main complaint about it is that if I'm taking less than 50, I think that it should be a fixed rate for 15 or more credits because they're recommending that we take 15 or more credits. But if I'm taking less than that, then I don't think I should be paying for more than what I'm taking. So why do you think they're doing this then? To increase revenue from students that aren't taking 15 credits. Oh, so do you really think that's the real reason behind them trying to do this, our revenue thing? I think they're also just trying to make it simpler for people. But by making it simpler for people, I think they're overcharging some people. I think they want to encourage students to get taken 15 credits a semester for four years will get you the minimum number of credits required to have to graduate because you need, what, 120? So by basically, they want to encourage people to not take, say, 13 a semester and instead take 15. So they're going to do that by saying if you take 12 or 13 or 14, you're still going to end up paying more money per credit than if you just took the 15. Uh, how do you think they could make it a better solution that you think would actually help not change anything? <laughs> there's no, do you think there's any possible way that like they could slightly manipulate it so that no. you'd be a fan? No, they can make, well they can make tuition free. That would help. <laughs> okay, bro. That was reporter Nick Saba and I'm Cole Tunningley. This has been The Undercurrent and the show's over. Thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olivia Mitchell, and our program director, Simon Fenzi. Thank you also to Sophie Sagan, Elaine Mallon, and Taylor Halterman for their work on this episode. I've been your host, Cole Tuttingly, and I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. See ya.